The best relationships are built on learnable skills. The question becomes, are we willing to learn these skills in community? Join John and Sungshin Lopnow as they bring your attention to the presence of God and practices that enable you to love deeply. And now, to tell you more about today's episode, here's John and Sungshin. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm John Lapno. I'm here with Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, and we're going to discuss uh, the new book that is coming out uh, called The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Thank you, uh, gentlemen, for being with me this morning for where I am, and you guys are both in Colorado, is that correct? Yes, in the mountain region. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Michael, we'll start with you. Um, kind of tell us your story, because in the beginning of the book, you talk about um, just your struggles as a pastor and how to grow, and that bled into meeting Jim, and we'll get to you, Jim, in a moment. But, Michael, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I was a, a pastor of spiritual formation in a large church here in Colorado, Um the, the job uh, description for that was basically how do we help people grow? How do I help? Because we had a lot of very, very young Christians coming in and they were excited and most of them didn't grow up in the church. I would say majority of them had never even read a book of the Bible, but they were really excited about the meetings on the weekends and what they were hearing, maybe some things for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my job was to think, okay, what about the next steps? How do we help people start growing in this wonderful um, transformational life that Jesus talks about, um, teaching people how to live in his kingdom here on earth with all the complications that come along with that on earth, you know. And so I created different things. I, you know, I did a, um, I wrote a book on the basics of the Christian faith. It was called uh, uh, Basic Training for Walking with Jesus. And we ha- would hand those out to everyone. And we would have a baptism service. We would hand out a copy to each person and things like that. And I, ca- and I created trainings for spiritual disciplines and everything. But I started seeing a trend over time that uh, the spiritual practices and disciplines that I was teaching, and I was even in my own life, seemed to work sometimes really well and have profound impacts on people's lives. And other times, they seemed to not work at all. Mm. And they would work for some people and not for others. And they would even work for me sometimes, and they wouldn't work for me other times. And, uh, and so I got to a point where I, you know, I would just like scratch my head and go, I don't, I don't think I have the whole formula here. I'm missing some variables. And, uh, and I remember I have memories of sitting in my office in church, staring at my dry erase board and just looking at it and wanting like a picture to come to my mind that I could draw that would explain it. And I got nothing Mm. until I got a phone call, uh, from a man who wanted to have lunch with me, who had visited our church. And uh, he's a man who's, uh, who's really interested in discipleship and getting that back into the center of church. And he was a good friend with Dallas Willard, if you know him, who's a real well-known uh, person who really championed the, the centrality of, of discipleship and character transformation in the church. And, uh, and so this man, one day we were having lunch. We started having lunch every month to talk about discipleship. And I pulled another friend in with us, another pastor. And uh, a couple months in, he mentions, he made a funny comment. He said something like, uh, you know, Michael, we need to make sure we don't forget uh, the neuroscience angle of mm-hmm. spiritual formation. And uh, and his name was Bob. And I said, you know, and I thought, you know, Bob's 80 something years old. And I thought maybe he's just having a senior moment there because that made no sense to me at all. So I kind of ignored him. And then we changed the subject and talked about something else. And 
So that's a good thing to do when you don't understand something. Just ignore it. Just ignore it. Pretend it was a mistake, you know. <laughs> but uh, but Bob, well, you pers- already uh, you already were a disciple of Dallas Willard, right? You'd been studying him for some time, and yeah. and you set a new record for that longevity in seminary. So it wasn't like you came into this without knowing the field, right? Yeah, my, my confusion really led me first to Dallas Willard because he seemed to be seeing, expressing some of the same frustrations I was having with my, in my mm-hmm. own personal experience with being a pastor of spiritual formation. And so I would just devour Dallas Willard. Um, and, uh, but there was really very little in seminary that prepared me. Mm-hmm. For example, for a person who uh, wants to try to read the Bible and when he reads it, he gets triggered emotionally and puts it down and doesn't want to look at it again. Oh, wow. And then he comes to me with that and I'm like, uh... Like, what do I do now? You know, nobody, nobody told me what to do about that or those kinds of things. Right. And so, but after having lunch that one time with Bob Howie, a month later, we were talking and he said the same thing. He said, I, you know, I think we may be forgetting to take into account how God designed the brain and the factor that plays and how we grow as disciples of Jesus. And I said, uh, Bob, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Why don't you give me a little more information? And he kind of smiled and said, "Well, let me invite Jim Wilder to our, our meeting next week, next month, and we will." Uh, and I think he probably can explain it a little bit better than I can. And that's when Jim showed up, and and basically we met for lunch, and he explained it out, and it was it was so overwhelming but intriguing at the same time that I asked Jim, "Can we get together again for a couple hours, not over lunch?" And I just kind of want to hear a long story and actually try some practices out and, and things. And it was during that meeting where I came to the conclusion that I was essentially a half brain Christian and I was helping people grow in my church mm-hmm. with, with the resources, the important resources, mainly out of our left brain, but ignoring the right brain, which is really the relational brain, the connecting brain, the joy brain, the identity part of our brain. I was, I was ignoring half of of the, all the brain resources that Jesus designed into us to help us grow. And so you might call it that a, uh, an eye opening experience for me. So you were, most of your energy and attention and resources were in cultivating the left part of the brain, the, the linear logical, like that, that information part. Yes. And it did provide, I mean, in the book you talk about, it actually provided a lot of growth for people who are new to the faith and interested in learning that, and it actually provide a lot, a good foundation for them. And that's where they saw a lot of growth. Right. Yeah, but, you know, knowing, having good information and truth is very, very important. Right. But there's another vast, vast areas of problems in our life and, and roadblocks and speed bumps we hit that don't have to do directly with truth. It has to do with other areas. And I was largely unprepared to handle that part. Hmm. And how long ago was this meeting in this conversation, this lunch? It was probably three years ago, three and a half years ago, something like that. And uh, and then after meeting Jim, I we kind of did a you know, a full jump into the deep end of the pool. My wife and I did. Yes. And uh, and so that was really a life life changing uh, experience, including a training in our basement with twenty uh, some odd people led by Jim and Kitty, um, essentially focused on training us to love our enemies, which is one of the most spiritually brain taxing events and activities we can do. Mm-hmm. And so you really need to bring in all these areas of a brain truth and as well as all the other um, areas in, of, of responsibility in our brain. Otherwise, you just will not have the capacity to love your enemy without, you know, especially the relational side. 
And then yeah. when well, we're talking about spontaneously loving your enemies, I mean, a lot of us can kind of willpower ourselves into at least not being mean to them and, you know, or expressing how we really feel. Mm-hmm. But what would it take to change our, our inherent response? And that was what Dallas always used as sort of the, you know, baseline. You know, we, we should respond inherently the way Jesus did not with sin management that we, you know, we have another response, but we're going to try to act like I do. I, I do. I'm going to love you if it kills me kind of a thing. So That's, we were having fun. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And when Jim mentioned the word spontaneous to us, we're all like, what, what do you mean by that, Jim, by spontaneous? And that got us in a whole field of, of neuroscience and character that I hadn't thought about before, which is, Mm-hmm. Um, and Dallas would talk about this. He, he would he would define maturity and character Christian character as when we easily and naturally do yes and say what Jesus would do and say if he were in our sho- shoes in that moment. And I remember reading uh, the Divine Conspiracy: Is the gospel we're preaching producing the disciples who do that? Right. And the answer is not so much. Inconsistently. Yes, right, right, yes. I'm trying to be, um, what's the word, generous and benefit of the doubt, but also just say what I see and tell the truth so that we can name the reality and actually grow in the truth of the whole brain, which is what why we're here. And I, I really am appreciating uh, your your journey, Michael, because I think so many of us can identify we're doing all the things that church leaders, of which all of us, the three of us are and have been, are telling us to do. Come to church, worship, serve, read the Bible, pray, tithe, but it's not producing the, char- the, the spontaneous response of Christ within me. What else can I do? We don't know what to do, so let's just keep doing more. So, Jim, your... Um, almost like secret agent Bob kind of created a connection. That's what he seems like to me. And actually, when you were speaking, Michael, it came to me, actually, Bob has a special role, I think, in the kingdom. And I don't actually, I think I've heard the name, but I don't know his history. But even here, he's an elder in the body of Christ, creating connections, um, taking an interest in someone younger, you, and then making a building this bridge with Jim and kind of in a um, covert way, just sprinkling this line. We can't leave the neuroscience out of it. And I think he did it. He was patient. He did it over time and which actually really got my attention in the book. And when you speak it here, so I just, I want to appreciate the elders in our community. Mm -hmm. That's like a beautiful glimpse and aspect of who God is and how he's forming us. So thank you, Bob. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Maybe I'll watch this. This is Bob Howie. Okay. Yeah. He's one of the founders of the spiritual formation movement, and he actually went to your church because he's looking for ways to get spiritual formation into churches. So taking initiative as an elder and uh, sharing what he knows, but very interestingly, still looking to learn. Mm-hmm. That's These are really, the things about them, yeah. yeah. I want to be like Bob when I grow up. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> That's really cool. So, Jim, you meet uh, Michael at lunch, and tell me, like, take it from there, like, take it from that, like, that meeting, and then how it grew, and integrate your your brain science wisdom that you have for us. 
Yeah, well, we'd moved out here to uh, uh, Colorado, and uh, Dallas's daughter had talked to Jane's. Uh, Dallas's daughter had talked to Bob's daughter and said, "You know, there's this guy coming out here, so you ought to meet him." And so she said, "You ought to meet my dad." And so, a relational network is really what we're talking about behind mm. all of this. It's, yes. it's you know, when people care about each other, then they share quite naturally the things that they're learning. Mm -hmm. and uh, with one another and so deeply embedded in all this is uh, the uh, this element of attachment or, or hesed it's like you know because i know you and i care about you i i share your struggles uh i share your answers you know we we learn this together and so then when bob uh, says you know I'm, I'm meeting with these two guys out of boulder two pastors up there and i'd like you to come along and um you know, we'll, we'll, I'll buy lunch, you know, I thought, well, it's good. I, I'll, I'll, I'll go for that. And yeah. uh, then I, I meet these two, two fellows and they're curious. I really like curious people, you know, they, they want to understand, they want to look into stuff um, and they don't pretend uh, to understand what they don't understand and, uh, or mm -hmm. to know what they don't know. They don't, they're genuine. They don't pretend that things work better than they do. Um, and you know, that to me right there is, you know, you landed right in a gold mine when it comes to, uh, you know, the kind of people I like to be around. So well, it sounds like you just described humble and curious. Cause like the humble part is like, I don't pretend to know what I don't know. That's, I like those people too, Jim. So mm -hmm. it's, I want to be around those people for the rest of my life. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, they've got enough experience that they've tried some things out and uh, they got some stuff that's working and they want to improve on it. Um, and so I, I felt like this is, this is great. And then uh, Michael immediately says, well, let's schedule a demonstration. And I don't know if you feel that about uh, Emmanuel prayer. Uh, you know, when people want to schedule a demonstration, it's kind of like I immediately have this excitement. And there's also this sense that this is a little out of control. Like if Jesus doesn't show up when we have this, uh, this is going to go real flat, real fast. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it was like, okay, you know, Jesus, you've gotten me into this one. <laughs> yeah. Let's go see what we're going to do. So. Uh, it was a lot of fun uh, to wow. me to say, well, let's see what happens. Now, mm -hmm. you know, just to move into the demonstration part of it, most of the time people sort of freeze when you ask them to do something unusual. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, you know, let's uh, let's start with a little reggae uh, experiment. You know, here you're going to do this reggae beat. We're going to do it together, and then we're going to ask Jesus to show up. And, um, I'm waiting to watch them go, like, this isn't what we do, and, you know, the whole thing, but no, they jumped right on in and, you know, I brought my plastic brain and reggae and what can you say, you know, let's, let's get on with it. And they were, they're like, okay, we're, we're uh, keeping the beat here and we're moving around the room and we're talking to each other and we're experiencing Jesus presence. And uh, uh, I don't know, was that anything you'd tried before, Michael, or how did that uh, feel to you? Yeah, well, you know, the reggae beat at first when we were doing it, it's kind of a clapping beat where you also then experience the uh, a sense of gratitude or presence of Jesus and then go back into a clapping beat that's kind of complicated and that changes as you go around the circle. So he simultaneously make us con concentrate on something 
mm-hmm. and then pull out and connect with Jesus and then concentrate on something and pull out and connect with Jesus. Really? You know, and I was thinking, what, why, what are we doing this for? Like, what's this have to do with discipleship? And then Jim says, what really what we're doing right now is we're training you to be able to maintain a connection with Jesus in a very confusing or distracting environment. Mm. And all of a sudden it's like bingo. It's like, I could, I could think of 20 situations in my own life where it was distracting. I could not maintain a, a yes. connection with Jesus. And you can actually train yourself to do that. Yes. That yeah. was news to me. Yeah. I think it's Sounded like what church should be. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's what I, I really like what Dallas had to say. It should be like the place that we're equipping and training and developing. And at, because of that line of thinking of what you're saying and what Dallas is saying, I call our um, small group that we meet on Zoom community of practice. Like hmm. every email, every verbal, it's because I want them to know we're not just learning a, more information. We're actually practicing something because that's – that's actually learning. Are you like practicing the presence of Jesus? Is this like presence and practice <laughs> together or what? Yes, Jim. Thank you for <laughs> and, and that. Wasn't even set up the presence and practice ministry here. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Jim. That was, that was smooth. Well done. So yes, actually like we're practicing the presence of God and every, I love brother Lawrence and, and doing the dishes and, you know, being on a zoom call and raising teenagers and administration stuff that drives me nuts. Can I practice the presence of God in those moments? I do want to hear about the four soils, but let's talk about joy and uh, hesed. So if you both can comment on the importance of joy. Well, joy and hesed are are the first two soils. So we're already into the soils, whether you knew it or not. And so really, you know, one of the things that stuck to me with Jim in that meeting we had when he brought his plastic brain is he he got it and he divided it into half and then started showing us how data flows through the brain and how it processes experiences like that. Yeah. And then he explained the difference between the left and the right brain and the right brain is really the relational brain. It's more powerful. And then he said something curious. I don't know if this is exact words and you can correct it if you want, but he said, and our brain is constantly looking for one thing and that's joy. And joy is defined as, as what you, what you feel when you can tell someone is, is happy or glad to be with you, that you're special to them. And we often detect that actually faster. This is the spontaneous thing. Again, we faster than conscious thought. It's not like we're thinking and, mm-hmm. and using our will to scan the room for faces. You know, if we go to a party or something, our brain is, I think about once every six times a second, it's, it's scanning the room and looking for light eyes that are lighting up faces that are smiling expressions, body language, that are communicating to us non-verbally that that person is really happy that I just arrived at this party, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is joy. And, and so the, um, you know, with the, the analogy of the soil, um, one of the key elements of healthy soil that will grow character um, is that it's a, an environment of very high joy where our faces are lighting up when we see each other, we're giving them our others, our, our eyes and our face um, and there's almost this kind of ping pong of joy back and forth in, a, in a, an environment and actually acknowledge that and build joy. We're also very, very uh, diligent in a community to fill any kind of holes or, or leaks that happen in our joy, which can happen for different reasons. But a joy is just like something we maintain, just like if, you know, if you're a gardener, you know, there's certain nutrients your soil needs for your tomatoes to grow well, where you're monitoring these four things to make sure, you know, that's, that they're all doing well. And if not, then you monitor that and you, and you, you build it. I, 
go ahead, Jim. I want. Yeah. So the, if you divide the brain here roughly in the front and the back part, which it divides right about through here, the yeah. back part is pretty much run out of fear, things you want to avoid, stuff you don't want to get into, hmm. and the front part is live, built out of desire, or and the desire I think we that we have is to be loved and enjoyed by other people. They'll be glad to see us. So if you think about being back in high school and the difference between being sent to the principal's office as a motivator or getting a bad grade or getting to see your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever it was, you see the difference between the two. One of it really energizes you to draw it in. The other one is like, I want to stay out of this. And so if you want to really build character, which one of those is the better way to go about it? You know, God's going to toast you in hell if you don't do right, uh, which has been, uh, you know, uh, used as a motivation for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, God's displeasure or uh, God's joy at being uh, your father and being with you and teaching you how to be alike, you know, like, you know, you're a chip off the old block. Right. Um, and that kind of motivation is very central to developing a character like God's. You can't develop a character like God's by trying to avoid his wrath. That's interesting because it, it flows out of our image of God. If he's angry at us, then that's how we will motivate as church leaders or followers of Christ, or if he loves us and is glad to be with us in the midst of our mess or sin, then there will be a different motivation. And almost all of the masters of prayer, the saints across the year from St. Clair a thousand years back to St. Teresa, uh, they were all sort of um, not real excited about the ascetic kind of Christian life. It's not what you give up. Uh, I mean, it, none of us deny that there's things we need to get up, give up. You know, there's there's uh, the things that you, if, if you crowd God out of your life, there's no way you can develop a good relationship with him. So we got to uncrowd the spiritual life. And a lot of spiritual formation practices are around uncrowding your life from all the stuff that gets in God's way. But that by itself only makes room for something else to grow. Now you have to have the joy of God's presence. And St. Teresa of, of Avila, for instance, was very much on how do you go into the uh, the inner castle of your life and discover mm -hmm. that in the center of it, in spite of your sinful ways, mm -hmm. there's a God who's going to delight to be with you. And let's make that journey to discover this face of God. Um, and I think the face of God became very central to you, Michael, as you were writing mm. the book and, and looking at this. What what was it about God's face that, that touched you? Well, um, the, the concept of God's face lighting up is actually more common in Scripture than we realize. Uh, sometimes it gets translated out. Mm. And one of my favorite Psalms was is Psalm 16, where it says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Yes. But that was always dear that God is close to me and, and that his closeness gives me joy. But if you kind of peel the, the English away and look at the Hebrew, the more literal translation is abundance of joy with your face. Hmm. So maybe the translation didn't know how, how to translate that using the face, or maybe they had, they have some preconceived notions about what that means. So they made it more of a, an intellectual, you know, God's presence versus, what's very much a, uh, an image of God's face lighting up. It reminds me 
um, you know, when my kids were small and, you know, one of our babies would be sleeping in their crib and we'd go in tiptoe in at night and look over the railing. And my face, I'm sure was just beaming this joy beam. Mm. Um, and to, and to have, you know, the sense that God's face is, is very similarly looking, tiptoeing and looking at me and his face is just lighting up because he's so happy to be with me. To me, that's a whole different level for that same scripture. And, you know, the, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar or by any means, but when I understand when you study more, they're very into the concrete, like display of God's character and, you know, God's presence. That's a little more generic but the abundance of joy on God's face shining upon you, that's way more concrete. And it has a more of a visceral response. Like I can remember that. And then you can think about the, uh, the passage that says uh, that God's eyes are searching the earth for those who love him. You know, you get that, put that together with what Michael just said about walking into a room and your brain is automatically mm-hmm. designed to scan the room for whose eyes are glad yes. to see that I'm here. Yes. Well, apparently God has the same thing. He yeah. scans the earth looking for who's looking for me. Who's glad to be with me. Um, uh, so even that there's this parallel in how God's mind works and how our brain was designed to work. Mm-hmm. I would love to see uh, groups of people and leadership have ways, you know, like when you're in leadership, there's things you monitor and who shows up I mean, the easier things to measure. But how do we keep on the forefront of our heart and our mind as leaders, as participants? How's the joy level? You know, who's, who's asking those questions? And, and how do we embed it in like the, the order of minutes and the, the way the meeting goes? How do we embed that? in that structure. And if you have thoughts or I know it is in the person and it's a relational dynamic, any thoughts, any response, because that, that's just a dream that I would love to see. Well, really the book talks about that. The other half of church is talking about that other half that is usually omitted mm-hmm. in our Christian practice. Um, even when you think of the process and the priorities you have, when you when a typical church hires a new pastor, they want a really good you know, good education in, in Bible and, and other spiritual practices and uh, that he, that the person is a good preacher, knows how to teach well, and they can run a good tight ship organization, those kinds of skills. And uh, very seldom do you see on the list of, you know, job requirements, uh, knows how to build joy and maintain joy, has a high joy, understands, you know, that just doesn't, that's the other half of church that's been missing. So your question is exactly where our book is going is like, let's, let's, take it back to this other half of church and what might a full brain Christianity and church experience look like um, versus one that's really helped, really keeled or tilted over to one side. Yeah. And the interesting thing is not that complicated because uh, one of the things uh, been discovered about the brain is even if it knows that joy is important and can't find it, it starts building anticipation of joy, looking for it around there. So, the second that a church starts a conversation of what's the genuine joy level around here? How are we showing each other that we're glad to be together? It will not be six weeks before everybody's got a much heightened awareness of whether there is or isn't joy when you walk into a church, when you walk into a meeting, when you have prayer, when you're doing this and that. Are we glad to be together or not? Uh, so if you're bold enough to ask the question, your congregation, the people around you will very soon start telling you if it is or isn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, it's not that hard to observe. It's just we have either not been taught to observe it or we've been taught not to talk about it. Mm. So break the rule, say we can talk about this. Uh, you'll discover real fast what the joy level is and where where it grows. I love that, Jim. So your 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 um, nudge is to start even bringing it up in conversation at whatever various level of influence you have in the organization. Let's just name it. Yeah. Well, you know, when I heard about joy, it was from the brain scientist, the Alan Shore conference. He's talking about the importance of joy to the brain. And it's central to forming character, central to forming relationships, central to making your brain grow, central to your immune system running right, central to uh, how your body organs function together, central to whether or not you have mental health uh, for a lifetime and all that sort of stuff. And I thought to myself, well, I've been through seminary and I don't remember them mentioning joy. I wonder if it's in the Bible. I mean, frankly, frankly, that was it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I go to look from the Bible and my goodness, it's everywhere. And Jesus and at the last supper says, you know, the reason that I have spoken to you is that my joy might be in you and your joy might be as full as possible. And I went, wow, that matches the brain design. How come I never heard about this in church? Uh, Cause by that point I had, you know, like 40 some years in all kinds of different churches and, mm. you know, uh, joy was like the maraschino cherry on top of a, uh, Sunday, you know, it was optional. It was nice if you had it, but you know, it was certainly not the main course. Uh, and and a lot of times, these definitions are not relational. They're just they're very individualistic, and it's just a, a sense of some positive well-being rather than uh, connected to how I'm doing relationally with people and how they're doing with me and monitoring. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah, really does only... take us to the second thing, though, about Hesed. I didn't mean to step on your <laughs> your announcement there, Michael, but we'll go back to that in a minute. But as soon as you develop joy, you start developing attachments to people. And if you're not developing attachments, then joy doesn't grow very far. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this this thing of you're going to have joy, you're going to develop attachments to people. And we've been taught a professional model of ministry you know, you do it professionally. You don't attach to people. This is not personal to you mm-hmm. uh, if you're doing it right. Uh, but joy doesn't respect such boundaries. Mm-hmm. So we really have to be creating an environment where we can form attachments, and all attachments are permanent. Mm-hmm. So we have to build for permanence. And again, the typical church is building for attendance, not for permanence. So we're going to be glad to be together, and it's going to develop something that's permanent. That's a different model. But uh, back to what you were going to say, Michael. Yeah, that's what I was saying as far as discipleship and my, the, you know, the, the re-scrambling how I would do discipleship is that not only is joy not the maraschino cherry, it's actually the first thing. I think it's the on-ramp, the first thing you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, then, and that joy immediately, like Jim says, leads into building these strong attachment has said type relationships, which more is a church functioning like a family than it is an organization or an establishment. Um, you know, these are, these are such strong relationships that they, you know, if someone gets a new job and moves to the East coast or something, there's pain involved there, you know, very much pain. Like if you're your child who grows up and then has to move far away, there's pain. It hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, that pain is a very good pain. It's a pain that says, okay, some, something healthy as far as attachment is happening happening here 
um, rather than, you know, oh, let's have a party for the person that go and you never really hear from them again or think of them much. Um, you know, there's kind of this mid-level acquaintanceship that we often maintain in church, but it never go, quite goes to the level of a family bonding attachment. Yeah. But if you don't have that family attachment, you know, the analogy Jim has used is it's like a firewall. You don't get into the character changing, deeper character changing areas of your brain without that attachment, without that level of loving bond, family bond. And so you're basically going to just kind of settle for a glass ceiling and it's a pretty low glass ceiling of change. There's still some change there, but you know, until these, our churches become high joy and very deeply bonded. Mm. Um, there's just, there's, you know, there's like a, you know, there's a limit on what you can do. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's a clever design. Somebody really intelligent was you know involved with this part of the brain. You wouldn't want every passing dog to tell you who you are and, and change be able to change that. There ought to be some kind of a safeguard. So only people who know you very well are allowed to change your identity. Mm. Uh, and if we know that each that well, we're going to be, there's going to have to be joy because that's what grows the, the attachment. And then there's going to, the, the attachment will develop. So these are people that are very important to me. They, I can't just let them, you know, drift off to Colorado and forget who they are or something like that. You know, it's like, you know, these people have gotten, you know, yeah. somehow their, their roots are in my, in, in with my roots. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's very central. And the brain says, okay, if, if we're that closely connected, I'll let you talk to me about who I really am. Um, now you're getting into the mirror neurons because I want to be like you. We want to be the same kind of people. What I see growing in you, I want to have growing in me. Mm. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm thinking I'm really energized by all like the things that you're talking about, um, being attached in Hesed love, building joy. And because I was uh, a full-time pastor at a church, associate pastor, I'm thinking of all the barriers in how the conversations are had sitting around at the leadership table. And so a sort of comical way of asking you is how do you scale Hesed love and joy and that permanent sense of family? How do you scale it from one to, you know, doubling our attendance in a year or two or three? And I mean, and I'm asking that, it pains me to ask it, but those are the, those are the conversations that get the attention at the leadership table. Mm. And it's a totally different direction and correction. And I, maybe I use correction on purpose because that's kind of somewhere we're, we're going to get to that. And that's, that's the, I think the last one, but, Oh, so I feel the pain. It's obviously scalable because with probably about 70 people, uh, Jesus was quite happy to, with the Holy Spirit to add 2000 in one day. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if it wasn't, if you, if you couldn't grow it, um, you know, that was a terrible idea. Right. Uh, Pentecost. So we've got the proof in the pudding. It can be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what are the ingredients that are necessary to do it is, Mm. um, you know, uh, you know, really, the one of the problems, for instance, that I've read about with Muslim ministry is that uh, Muslims believe, uh, because of their culture, 
that if someone is trying to win them to be a Christian, it's because they want to have a relationship with them. And they're constantly mystified by the Western church, winning them over. As soon as they make a decision to become Christians, it's like, okay, I'm done with you. Now you just go join the, and I'll go find somebody else. Mm -hmm. And wait a minute. I thought we were becoming family. I thought you, I was going to be one of the people of God. Now you're my people. I'm your people. What, you know, what's going on here? So there are people in the world already thinking along those lines. Hmm. What happens when you're going to uh, grow your family? Uh, and we have almost we have so little undergirding of we're going to form an attachment. This will be a people in our thinking mm -hmm. that we don't even know where to put them there. You know, like well, what if we have an extra person? I don't know. Run out of soup. I don't know what is it. Uh, so you know. You know what the answer is that I've heard churches say is you get a bunch of new people to form their own little family. That's the, that's the uh, logistical system to create that. That's like the McDonald's formula. You just, you spawn off a franchise mm -hmm. and give them their own building and teach them how to make fries and the hamburgers and then say, have fun and yeah. let's have a year of the end party in our city yeah. with all our franchises. But and it, it should last about two years, and then they should all spin off, and each one of them form another cluster. And so, right. as right. long as it lasts two years, we're okay. Right. Right. Which is you're we're going in a different direction, and and maybe I'm naming it because these are real conversations that I've been a part of, and they have a lot of energy. You know, they have a lot of like momentum to them, and maybe that it's changing now. Um, right. So if I can go back to this presence and practice idea. Do it. Um, and uh, I might be stepping on Michael's thunder here. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the Great Commission, as I read it, is to, you shall go and be my witnesses. Now, um, first of all, we generally in the West read witness to mean somebody who talks a lot about God. But suppose the witness is someone who sees something. You're the people who sees God's presence. Mm -hmm. And you're going to go every place in the world seeing what God is doing immediately right now in spite of all of the distractions. And then it says you're going to make disciples. Mm -hmm. Now, we tend to say, well, we'll make disciples for Jesus. But the passage doesn't have that sort of emphasis. It says you're, if you're making disciples, they're going to be people who follow you, and you're going to be teaching them how to see Jesus in every moment. Mm -hmm. That you'll be the witness. You're teaching them how to see Jesus' presence and practice that with each other. Now, as soon as that starts spreading out, so I'm staying with you, and no matter how bad things get here, we're going to see where Jesus is and... Uh, we're going to practice that together. Yeah. Now you've got something that actually builds and, and spreads. Yes. Uh, and immediately, when do you need most help seeing where Jesus is? That's when people feel like enemies. Mm -hmm. Right? So every yeah. time someone feels like your enemy, is that how God sees it? Well, no. Let's practice together till we see that. Your husband feels like your enemy right now. Your child does. Your ex-wife, your whoever it is. Well, let's get Jesus in here and let's let's experience his presence and and, wow. and if that's what we're doing every time we get together, that that actually will scale very nicely, but it it really restructures things mm -hmm. from being an organizational structure to how are we going to together practice the presence of Jesus. 
Yes. So what, what would you say about that, Michael? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the reasons why, you know, if Hesed starts growing in joy and it starts getting bigger, well, a lot of the reasons that that then blows up is because we don't te- teach people how to handle the problems that inevitably come because we don't teach people how to love their enemies. Because if we're in a, a, a very deep Hesed church and it's getting bigger, we're going to have problems. We're going to bump heads. There are going to be people hurt feeling. There's different levels of maturity. Um, and that, and you know, so that's the the importance. Then the you know one of the things we do for the th- the third element of soil is a group what we call a group identity, which mm-hmm. basically lays us out how do we live in the kingdom of God on earth very specifically. Hmm. Um, you know, one of one of the most important or fundamental group identity statements has has to do with loving our enemies. We are people who love our enemies, and we t- we return blessings when we are cursed. And if you're hearing that, you're a brand new Christian, you start going to church and you hear that every couple of weeks, that's the kind of people we are. We love our enemies. Here's a story about when I loved an enemy. Here's what a story when I didn't love my enemy, but this is what I would have done. And maybe you can help me be better. If that's just what we're doing, um, then all of a sudden when someone in my big church, uh, you know, I have a problem with them or two other people have a problem. You know, we've been talking about loving our enemies all along. We've been practicing it. So it's not like we're starting from ground zero. Uh, or, you know, what usually happens is when those conflicts arise, then people just split up and one group goes to, goes to another church and this one stays here and then that splits up. And that's been the history of, you know, the, the Christian church for the last thousand years. If I can jump in on that, since I get to talk to a lot of church pastors that have these small groups, hmm. they say typically first two years of small groups are very nice and then the problems emerge and then this groups break apart and, you know, because no one knows what to do without now that people's dirty laundry, let's say, is coming out or they're getting conflicts with each other. And shouldn't that be just when the when you know the good stuff starts? Mm. Right. Yeah. The I, that I have also seen uh the kind of multiplication of the small groups. It it, it happens tends to happen right around that time when the the, the real uh stuff starts to heat up. And from the group identity, uh, I think it was the Pandora problem. I kind of wrote down the, is it five or six? Um, six. I, I put it in my Evernote. And I've, I, I'm i the kind of nerd who prints this stuff out and brings it to vacation and talks with other families that we're with and saying, let's discuss <laughs> this. And, and it's good. I mean, these are like thoughtful people that we go on vacation with. We only go on vacation with like wonderful human beings. So... <laughs> But one of the ones that I love in there is how often in the last week have I felt the pain of someone who is important to me? And then it, sort of a, a corrective part of that is when have I thought, oh, they had it coming, that they deserved it. That was a consequence of their behavior. So you can see like when I was proactive and when I was like reactive, like, oh, so that's part of the group identity. There's questions that we can put on the forefront of our mind to make sure that these things get our attention and that we bond accordingly. Well, I think one of the interesting things that Michael said that caught my attention, first thing was that, you know, oh, I would revise what we teach people. We've been telling them, here's what we believe. Hmm. And so we've got a series, our church is defined by our beliefs. Hmm. Uh, but you said you were going to go back and revise that. So can you tell us a little bit about that? It sounds good. Yeah, so the first thing I would teach any new believer is how to build joy. That's number one, because that's kind of the joy really functions as the fuel for the whole character building, relationship growing endeavor. It's the thing that puts fuel in the gas tank of that whole process. And when the joy is low, 
even really, really good and wonderful practices aren't going to work very well. Just like your car, when you're low on gas, it could be a Ferrari, a beautiful Ferrari, and if it doesn't have gas in it, it's completely useless to you. Right. So um, this is a big shift from we believe to we are. Mm. Right. Um, as what defines you as a group. Mm-hmm. So then you know if you're operating out of who you are, designed to be, who your true identity, or outside of that, less mm-hmm. than that. Yes, and then the joy, the joy building and the attachment building as well, well is, a, is a crucial element for people who have, like Jim mentioned earlier, kind of a fear bond with God, where they're more afraid of God, what God might do if I don't act right, or mm-hmm. that he might send me to the hell or things like that. You know, and the Apostle John seems to see, think that's a normal spiritual practice. You know, we teach people that, you know, perfect love casts out all fear. So obviously, if some people are having some fear, well, that's it's, at least they have something, some bond with God. Now, let's take that bond and let's transform it into a joy, love-based bond. And to me, that should be normal spiritual formation, just like teaching someone how to study the Bible or pray. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, check out your bond with God and let's work on that and make sure it's solidly love-based there's any fear in there? Okay, great. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get get working on it. I love that posture. I mean, because that's we all have some some elements of our attachment to God that need strengthening and and correction and guidance. So that's that's beautiful. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners are probably wondering, like, are you guys disposing with truth now, so we don't have to have beliefs? We just have to, you know, let's all let's all get together and love one another. <laughs> Is that what you're proposing, uh, Jim? <laughs> well, was, let's ask Michael. He was going to move. We believe into we are people who. That's uh, how do you how do you put those two sides of the brain together right there? Mm. Right. You know, having good information and correct doctrine is very important. You know, Jesus's words are very very wise, and they're teaching us how to live. They're teaching what is important to God and what's less important to God, what his priorities are, the way he views life, so we can view it like him. Um, and, and uh, you know, but having the reason I start with joy, though, and then getting in and then building Hesed bonds is when you're in that kind of a relational environment, your brain is in a way that any kind of spiritual discipline, such as studying scripture and learning, um, you know, what God says and how Jesus, what te- Jesus teaches is going to be more have access past the firewall into the deeper areas of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, those deeper areas are, you know, do- doctrine really, really strongly informs how we are to live in this world. How do we handle very specific things? You know, mm-hmm. how, what do we do? Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount is a really good just list of how people live in the kingdom of God. Um, and he talks about, you know, what do you do when people insult you? you know, how, how often do you, you know, how often are we trained how to handle that and, and taught by people? We see it because mm-hmm. we share stories or maybe you're, if, you know, if you have a family level bond with them, you may actually, get to see them be treated like an enemy and, and see how they handle that when they're cursed mm-hmm. and handle that with blessing. Um, so the group identity really is, is the de- definition of, of how the kingdom of God works in this earth. You know, so our doctrine really informs that deeply. It does, it's not just a, a mental intellectual exercise of lining up all your, our ducks in a row. It's actually teaching us how do you live in God's kingdom on this messy earth, planet earth that we where we find ourselves right now, you know, with COVID and with Mm. um, protests going on and people losing their jobs and and businesses closing and on and on and on. Oh, well, how do, how does the kingdom of God function in this crazy environment? 
So it's, and even in your home, because if someone's going to insult you, you just listen to your kids talk to each other, and you'll yep. won't be very long before you see someone's going to have to handle. What do we do when we are insulted? Yeah. Yes, and you're so it's almost the truth that could be written down is embedded in the relational context mm-hmm. that we're living in. So the yes. truth is alive and well and being experienced. It's very very relational. Uh, you know, it's everything God does is, is to further the relational connection between us and him and between us and each other. You know, Jesus uses the, the analogy of a vine and a branch, you know, he's a branch Mm. and we are attached to him as a vine. And when we stay attached to him, we bear fruit. Mm -hmm. Our attachment image. Yeah. That's a very strong attachment image that, you know, and in that work, that attachment to Jesus, we need good truth. We need correction. You know, that's the fourth nutrient is when we have this really robust group identity, mm. well, invariably, we're, we're going to not live up to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to start exhibiting fruit. Maybe it's some arrogance of mine, or maybe I'm not sharing other people's pain, or, or I'm trampling people because I want to get things done. You know, you see this in churches. I see it in my own life. And uh, and if you've been well-trained, this is one of the most radical things Jim said in our Loving the Enemy training we took, is he says, you know, after a while, when you get used to doing this, when when someone comes up to you and says, you know, I, th- I think you weren't acting like yourself back there. Can I, do you want me to remind you mm. my reaction seat, which should be, Oh boy, hmm. I, I get to see something about myself that doesn't look like God's kingdom. And I get to be corrected and I get to know Jesus more, maybe in situations where right now I kind of lose him and start acting differently. Mm. So I remember one time I was working in a counseling office and one of the other ladies had, uh, was a counselor and she'd been to the bathroom and she came back with uh, toilet paper, um, you know, actually stuck to the bottom of her shoe. And, you know, I went up to her and said, you know, you have some toilet paper there you might want to take care of before you see your next client. She was very appreciative. Embarrassed, yes, but uh, appreciative, you know. And, and in a sense, aren't that's what we want to do for, for people, you know. It's uh, um, if my if I fail to tell my wife when the, her tag is sticking up on the back of her dress, uh, yeah. you remember um, um, Markle, um, the pre- once time princess, went out with her her name tag up in the press of the entire world. <laughs> you know that, that's oh, so we call it having a Markle. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So if I fail to tell her that she feels like I've let her down, how did you let me go out with my whatever showing, you know, mm. and in a sense, that's what we want to do with each other. You know, your, your non-Christian, you know, false self is showing. Would you not like to get back to who you really are? Let me help you on your way back. Uh, which requires, you know, being able to see each other uh, the way Jesus sees it. So having that, even when you're not acting like yourself, we have enough of the presence of Jesus that we can practice looking at each other and reminding each other who we really are. And this correction uh, should be something we really welcome. Mm. Uh, we're actually quite terrified because, you know, it has that initial shame, embarrassment reaction like, oh, uh, uh, now what? Do you still love me? And now yeah. you have to have acid. So, oh, yes, I'm glad to be with you. Amen. It, it's all in the brain. That's why we don't do that correction very often is because, number one, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Mm-hmm. So we try to be too nice. Maybe we don't have the, the kind of attachment where we can do that. Um, but another reason is, too, we haven't practiced it. We don't train people. 
You right. know, it takes some repetitions to come up with the words and to do it clumsy and then have someone say, well, it would have been better if maybe if you'd done it this way, but thank you for trying and you get better at it. And uh, so that's, that's again, some of the omission of what we do in our discipleship. We don't teach people how to train people in a very loving, mm-hmm. healthy group identity saturated way. Well, I see the sequence of joy going to Hesed love, this attachment, group identity, then the correction. Mm-hmm. You have those th- three sequentially in order over time, then the correction seems to be natural. Like, of course, I want like too much growth over here or weeds or things to be pruned to, so that there can be more fruit of the kind of fruit we want rather than the destructive kind. And mm-hmm. so it, I do think you guys have laid it out beautifully in this podcast and even in the book. So I'm really looking forward to the fruit that comes from the book coming out, but actually seeing pictures of people, circles of people, either on Zoom or in person, around the book, engaging the ideas, engaging each other relationally, practicing the presence of God. And that's why I wanted you guys on here. Mm -hmm. I know both of you. I consider you friends. Michael, we met uh, one time or for over one week. But I really want these ideas to be engaged in, in webs of relationships all over the world. And so I'm, that's my prayer and blessing for, for the people of God and for the world. And if and that's part to- of the whole, whole part of me being a relational network. You see, I had these ideas. Michael sequenced them and simple, simplified it into four steps. So it's like, you just outlined that, and now you're spreading that to the people you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to make disciples. And you're going to say, see, look, Jesus is here at work. And uh, uh, by putting these elements together as a people, it'll spread. It'll grow. Mm. I can't wait to see the fruit. Yeah, we can't either. We're excited. Yeah, Michael, would you uh, just bless the people who hear this with just, you know, just a, a, like a benediction, a blessing, just from the heart flowing out okay. of what, what we've, we've shared here today. Well, for anyone who is listening, I bless you with a growing joy in your heart that you can feel Jesus's face shining on you and that he would bring you to a community if you don't already have one where you show up and you can feel faces shining on you and you feel your face lighting up and then you start developing those deep bonds that Jesus talked about as a, a branch and a vine to him and to each other. And that you would start to learn and train how to live in the kingdom of God on earth. And that you would leave, you'd be so committed to that, that when you see each other failing to do that, you very lovingly correct them and remind them, this is how we do this in God's kingdom. I think you did it this way. Let me remind you how we do it. And, uh, and they're assured of your love for them. It's not a shaming thing that would uh, you know turn them up, but it's actually a, a, a healthy correction and that. Um, may God give you as a result of all this abundant, abundant fruit. Beautiful. Thank you so much. You guys are uh, wonderful human beings. I'm really glad you were here and uh, God bless you and your family members and the people you are attached to. So, Thank you, John. Thank you, John, for having us. Thank you very much. May God bless you and may we become the kind of people who experience the God who sees us, who hears us, and who knows the depth of what we are going through so that we know that he is with us and he is doing something about this by strengthening our spirits.
may we become the people of love. Amen.